Well, it's good to start the new year in God's house, and um, we do pray that the Lord will bless all of us in this coming year. Uh, We can begin by singing Psalm 112, from Sing Psalms, and we'll stand to sing. Praise God, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and finds delight in following his word. We'll sing the whole psalm. Praise God, blessed is the man who fears the Lord and finds delight in following his word. His children will be mighty
Shall we pray? Lord, we come to you. <clears throat> we thank you that we are coming uh, to the one who does not change. Uh, today is a, a marker in our lives. A year has ended, another year has begun. We can never say that about you. You are the eternal God. You're the same always. You don't improve because you cannot improve. You are perfect. The one thing that we can say about the year that's passed <clears throat> is that we have changed in it. Changes may have affected us in all kinds of ways, but we come to you today, the one <clears throat> who was the same. And that's good for us to know that. The, you're always the almighty God. You're always the God of love. You're always the God of mercy. You're the God of peace. <clears throat> You're the God of all grace. Who can estimate how much grace you gave in the past year? But whatever the amount is, it hasn't depleted your resources in the slightest. It's hard for us to grasp all that. But whether we can grasp it or not, it's good for us to know it and live in the light of it. And as we start another year in our lives, uh, we have no idea what's going to happen in it. And yet, with regard to yourself, you already know every detail. You don't know merely the external details that will happen to us. But you know all the internal details. You know how we're going to think, what we're going to think, why we're going to think in certain ways. And at this moment, <clears throat> it's impossible for us even to anticipate any of that. But you know it all already. It's not only the events of this new year that you know. You know the entire future. Not just the future of our earthly existence, but you know the future, if we may speak that way, of the eternity to come. Every aspect you know already. You truly are a great God. And we thank you, Lord, that you always will be. We thank you, too, that in this year that started, as in the year that's gone, the gospel is still there. Your message to us. All kinds of messages, no doubt, are going around the world today. Your message comes. In the gospel, uh, the same message that you've been sending down the centuries, the message that you've promised to bless, you blessed it in the year that's gone, 
We may have seen part of that blessing, but we only saw a fraction of it. All over the world, your blessing was given through the gospel, and we know that will happen in 2023 as well. That in this year that's just started, uh, Jesus will build his church. No doubt that process has continued today. It was happening yesterday. And no doubt it's happening today. And it will happen throughout the remaining days of this year uh, that Jesus will build his church. That gives us hope. Because we see lots of things around us that would make, make this year seem rather uh, frightening and which would make us apprehensive if we did not know that you were the same yesterday, today and forever. We see all the problems on the political level and at the social level. We even see it in the decline of religion or perhaps the replacement of one religion with another, the decline of nominal Christianity and it being replaced by doing your own thing, whatever that happens to be. One religion replaces another. And we thank you that the true religion uh, keeps on growing. And that Jesus the King will build his church. And he'll build it not just in our Western society, but he'll build it in every society. We thank you, Lord, for the wisdom that Jesus has to use 2023 for the glory of God. And it's good for us to belong to that same purpose and that we, in our small way, can dedicate ourselves to use 2023 to the glory of God. So, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us as we gather here in the first day of the year. We thank you for your word. It doesn't change. Centuries have come and gone since it was finished. It's still as relevant as ever and always will be. Whatever developments and crises and problems arise in the coming year, your word is still a light for our feet and a lamp for our path. So, Lord, we commit ourselves to you and enable us, whatever our past has been and whatever our levels of dedication have been before, that today we would be more determined to spend our lives for you. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us as families, remember us all in that way. We pray you bless us as a congregation, as a denomination. We pray you bless your church in our country and indeed throughout the world. Remember our governments, we're, we're sorry about some of the laws they've passed in this past year. But we pray, Lord, that you would guide them to make 
to, dis- to take the teaching of your word into account as they plan their laws for the future. We pray, Lord, that you would <clears throat> remember the needy. There are many needy people in the world, needy in temporal things, and all the crises that's happening at the moment is bound to increase that problem. We just pray, Lord, that you would help those who are trying to alleviate all the need that there is in the world. We pray for the places where there's wars, that in this coming year they would cease. We realize that one way whereby that could happen is for the gospel to be blessed in a widespread manner. We pray for the parts of the world, like Ukraine and other places, which are living today in dreadful circumstances. We pray, Lord, that these wars would cease. And that justice, righteousness, would replace these acts of evil that are occurring throughout the world. Lord, remember your church and persecuted for you today. We pray that you would strengthen them. Spent the last year, perhaps in fear, trepidation. We pray things would change for them this coming year and that you would use them to bring great gospel blessing to these countries in which they suffer for the faith. Pray, Lord, you remember your ancient people, Israel. We thank you for the promise in your word that one day they as a race will embrace the Messiah. We don't know when that's going to happen. We would like it to happen in 2023. Because great global blessing is going to be the consequence of it. So Lord, we pray you would hasten that time. So Lord, be with us in our service. Remember the children here. ask you to bless them in the service. And we just pray, Lord, that you remember us for good. So be with us, we pray, and pardon our sins. For Christ's sake, amen. And we can read from the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax in our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it, 
for other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard the outcry and these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest, each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers, that they may be sold to us. They were silent, and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praised the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the twentieth year to the thirty-second year of Artaxerxes the king, twelve years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people, and took from them for their daily ration forty shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded over the people. But I did not do so, because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. 
And may God bless that reading. Now Graham will give a children's talk. some children are going to come down. I'm not going to be speaking to empty seats. Good morning. How are you all? Good. It's nice to see you all. Are you enjoying your holidays? Yeah. Very good. Very good. And do you know what today is? New Year's Day. Yeah, it's the first day of a new year. So it's the first of 2023. So, do you, feel, do you feel a day older? No. No? No? Have any, of you, have any of you heard of a New Year's resolution? Do any of you know what New Year's resolutions are? What, you heard of them? What, what are they? It's like a thing that you try to do for the rest of the New Year. So, do any of you have a New Year's resolution? No, probably not if you didn't know what they were. So... A New Year's resolution, some people, I'm sure if we ask the adults, or maybe if you ask your mum and dad, they might have one. Um, some people try to get fit and do lots of exercise in the new year. They've eaten so much food over Christmas that they need to do some exercise and get fit. Um, or some people will try and be healthy in the new year and eat healthy food. Um, some people, their New Year resolution might be to read more books and we learn more things. Yeah? So maybe you'll have a think about it. You might come up with a year's resolution. Something that you're going to try and do um, throughout the rest of the year. But if you can't think of one, I've got a good one that we can do. That we all do. It's good for the adults, good for the children, it's good for me. That is, we could make this year, 2023, a year where we try and get to know God better. That would be a good thing to do, wouldn't it? We can get to know God better. We could... So at the end of the year, when we look back, if we get to the end of the year, we'll look back and we'll maybe think, that was a good year, a year that we got to know God better, a year that we walked closer with God, a year that maybe we started trusting in Jesus for the first time, or we'll look back and we can think of these things. Now, how do we get to know God better? What do you think? If we were going to make that our New Year resolution, we thought, right, this year I'm going to I'm going to try and get to know God better. What might we do to that? Yes, Leah. Pardon? Pray to him. That's a really good answer. Pray to him. Yes. Yeah? Read the Bible. Yeah, that's two really good answers. Pray to him and read the Bible. But let me ask you something. If you had a new person come to your school, in your class, and you thought, they seem like a nice person, I would like to get to know them, what would you have to do to get to know that person. No, you wouldn't pray to them, that's right. No. But what would you do? You would maybe talk to them. You would talk to that person and get to know them. And that's what praying is, isn't it? Praying is talking to God. And that's how we can get to know God better. What can we pray about? Yeah? To help us, yeah, that's right. We can ask God to help us. What else can we pray about? think we can ask God to help us can we say thank you to God for anything yeah we can we can say thank you to God for all the good things that he's given us we can thank him for giving us Jesus who came to be our saviour and our rescuer Um, 
If you had a friend at school and you did something that made that friend sad and you maybe upset that friend, what would you have to do? Say sorry. You'd have to say sorry, yeah, because if you don't say sorry to that friend, you won't be their friend for much longer. And we have to say sorry to God for the things that we do which disappoint him and um, the things that God doesn't want us to do. So we can say thank you to God, we can ask him to help us, we can say sorry to God. Lots of things we can do when we pray to God. And the other thing that somebody said was read the Bible. That's another good thing, isn't it? We can learn a lot about God and get to know him by reading the Bible. So there's two things. If you don't have a New Year resolution, there's one that you can think about. This year can be a year that you focus on and you think about getting to know God better. And we can do that by praying and by reading the Bible. Well done. Well, Happy New Year to you all. I hope you have a very good New Year. And um, we're going to now pray together. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your your name. Your Your kingdom come. Your will will be done on earth as in heaven. Give us us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Very good. Thank you, Graham. We'll now sing from Psalm 17 and sing Psalms, verses 1 to 6. Lord, hear my righteous plea and listen to my cry. It does not rise deceitfully or come from lips that lie. We'll stand and sing verses 1 to 6. Lord, hear my righteous plea and listen to my cry. Oh, <laughs> 
in the chapter and the title I have given to it is Problems from the Inside. So far in the book of Nehemiah, problems have come from the outside. There has been the problems caused by Sanballat who rules up in Samaria, and Tobiah, who rules towards the east in the Ammonite territory. And we also saw in the previous chapter that there were troubles coming from the south with the Arabs and from the west, from Ashdod, which was a Philistine territory. And these problems, of course, were quite difficult, north, south, east, and west, coming from all directions. And we might say, well, that was enough for Nehemiah to have to cope with. But here in chapter 5, there's another uh, issue arising in his um, attempt to build the wall. And that's what Nehemiah is about, isn't it? Building a wall around the city in order to find protection and all the benefits that come from having this kind of wall in the ancient world. And it seems that as he aims to get it completed, all these problems arise. And we know from later on in the book that it only took him 52 days to do it. So, um, which is not very long, but it might seem quite long if all you get is troubles coming from the outside and then from the inside. So here in chapter 5, we have problems from the inside. And of course, that's a reminder to us that Nehemiah is saying to us, there's more than one way to hinder progress. Sometimes, as I just indicated, progress comes from the, hindrance comes from the outside, sometimes from the inside. And as you read the chapter, we might think that all those who are trying to hinder things, that it all seemed very 
reasonable. Looks like it's a look at three things, really, from the passage. What was the problem? That's in verses 1 to 5. Then there's Nehemiah's initial response in verses 6 and 7. And then there's his convening an assembly, which starts in verse 7 and goes down to verse 13. And after that, in the chapter, he gives a brief summary of what he was like as a governor. And then we'll look at some lessons that come from all this. What was the problem? Well, the problem is, seems to be brought to a climax by a famine. But the led, as we can see in verse 1, it led to a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. The harvest time in Israel, well, the barley harvest occurred in April and May, and the wheat harvest occurred in May and June. So maybe there was a both harvests had been adversely affected. And therefore there would be a shortage of uh, resources, of food in the community, and we can see that kind of, that this harvest is actually exacerbating all the problems that's, that already existed. And what were they? Well, there was an increase in the population. And of course, that's what they wanted, wasn't it? They wanted an increase in the population. They were wanting to rebuild the city. So obviously, an increase in the population would sound very, very reasonable. But then a famine comes. So it's a problem. Connected to the arrival of the famine was an increase in the price of food. Obviously, food was short, so the price went up. Connected to that, in verse 4, there's the tax that the emperor was um, demanding. Now, in normal times, apparently, this emperor's tax didn't amount to very much. But when everything else was short, then his tax that he was adding was making things very difficult. Even more surprising there in verse 5 is that some of the, the Jews were in such a desperate situation that they had to sell their children into some kind of um, bondage whereby other families would take them in and look after them but, but use them as a source of, of labor and so on. And before we um, um, look at that in a negative point of view, because we might be tempted to do that immediately, we should remember that in Leviticus chapter 25 and verse 39, they were allowed to do that. It says in 
Leviticus chapter 25. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of jubilee. So they were allowed to do it. It was an arrangement they had within their society that if one family was too poor uh, to look after their, um, all their children, then it, if a neighbor was prepared to take them on, then they would um, go along with that arrangement. But obviously it was um, a system that could be open to abuse. So, and that's what was happening in Nehemiah's time. And um, he was confronted with this very difficult situation. Now, I suppose there's an obvious question that arises here. And that is, how did some of them become so wealthy? Because obviously not everybody was suffering. All of them were returnees from the exile. But here they are, some of them are now in a position to um, purchase, if that's the way of putting it, um, other Jews to work for them. How did they become so wealthy? I mean, that is, I think, a reasonable question to ask. And we get an explanation for how they became wealthy in several places in the book of Ezra. And the basic reason why they became wealthy was because the emperor of Persia told all the surrounding nations to give them as much gold and silver as they needed. I mean, that was an extraordinary provision, wasn't it, from the emperor? Both Cyrus said that in Esther chapter, chapter <coughs> 4 and also Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 9. And he just commanded the surrounding peoples, if these Jews need anything, as much gold, silver, anything else as they want, give it to them. And they obviously did. And indeed, they had given it to such an extent that when we turn to the book of Haggai, for example, uh, Haggai comes along to this, Haggai is just before the time of Nehemiah, And Haggai comes along and says to the people in Jerusalem, you're actually spending all the money you've been given, and remember, they've been given it. You're actually spending all the money you've been given on your own houses and giving them paneled walls, and you're not spending it on God's house, which was the main reason why the emperor of Persia has said the surrounding nation should help them. But anyway, as far as the situation in Nehemiah is concerned, how does some of them become so wealthy? They had become wealthy because other people had been generous to them. But having received from their generosity they refused to practice generosity. 
and instead were prepared to make their fellow Jews suffer. And here we have a sad situation. There's a great outcry amongst the people because some of the Jews are exploiting the others. And that's a very sad situation to have been in, wasn't it? Selfishness. Well, it can really hinder God's purpose, or so it seems, from this particular chapter. I mean, Jesus spoke about this, didn't he? Remember the parable of the unforgiving servant? The man who had a huge debt. And in the story, the man's master forgives him everything. All this huge debt that he had. Just forgot about it. Then that forgiven servant bumped into another servant who owed him something very minute. And instead of imitating his master and forgiving his, and forgiving his fellow servant that minute detail, the servant who had been forgiven by the master in the parable threw the other servant into prison. And of course Jesus in the parable tells us that when the master heard about it, he became very angry and put the unforgiving servant into prison. God is always overflowing in goodness. And I suppose this chapter is telling us that we are to be like him in our goodness. But anyway, that was the problem that was facing Nehemiah as he built the wall. If we were there, what would we think should be the priority of Nehemiah? Is he to keep building the wall? Or is he to somewhere or other do something about these situations that have arisen? What was his priority now? Well, that leads us to think about his response, which is described in verses 6 and 7. And in that response by Nehemiah, there's several features of it that I think are worth noticing. And the first one we can see in verse 6 is, he was angry. Indeed, he wasn't just angry, he was very angry. He obviously just didn't take this... um, Situation as something, well, it's obviously beyond my ability, 
I mean, after all, what could he have done to prevent the famines? It wasn't in his power to ensure that famines wouldn't happen. But he didn't adopt that excuse and say that he was, um, somehow that was all beyond his control. Instead, he was angry, very angry. And I suppose when we read that, Maybe we say to ourselves, was he right to be angry? Is it a good thing to be angry? Are there circumstances in which anger is the appropriate response? Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 26, and it is a command, this is an imperative, he says, I'm sure we know the verse. Be angry. That's the command. Be angry. And sin not. He doesn't say, don't be angry. He expects there are situations in which anger is appropriate. And when these situations arise, he says, watch you don't turn it into something sinful. But he does say, doesn't he? Be angry. If it's the required response. And here's Nehemiah, and he tells us, and he's writing a report of some kind, isn't he? He says, I was very angry. But it's important, I think, as we look at that, to realize he wasn't full of rage. Nor did he fly off the handle. Because we're told again there in verse 7 that his anger was controlled. That he was... um, He took time to think about it. There's one of the Proverbs says, written down here, one of the Proverbs says, 29.20, Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. That's in Proverbs 29.20. Nehemiah, he wasn't like the man there that's condemned in Proverbs. He thought about it. What can I do? What should I do about this situation? His response to the dilemma was not one of petulance or outrage. But he was angry. And he thought about what he should do. In that verse in Ephesians... Were just quoted where it says, Be angry and sin not. Also says, Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. Paul's words there tell us, don't they, that we have to deal with the reason for the anger very quickly. But not quickly in the sense that we fail to think about it. Says Nehemiah. 
What am I going to do? He basically says to himself. He doesn't say in verse 7, I went out and canvassed what everybody else thought. He says, I took counsel with myself. I'm responsible, he says, to deal with this situation. It's hindering the building of the wall. And I've got to do something about it. So he thought about it there in verse 7. And then he confronted the guilty with their sin. He says that to them, doesn't he? I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. What did he base his charge on? Well, he based it on the fact that they were disobeying God's law. They were exacting interest. And it says there in Exodus 22, verse 25, it says, God says to the children of Israel, If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him, and you shall not exact interest from him. God has said that in Exodus chapter 22, that they were not to charge interest off their fellow Jews. And these people had been doing it, and Nehemiah pointed out to them their sin. His anger really is not because somehow they are hindering him. His anger is because they are doing something that's in disobedience to God's word. And he confronts them with it. He follows the process that Jesus later was going to say was the method that we should do when some, somebody does something wrong, that we should go and speak to them about it. And that's, we all know that that's the normal process. Ang- angry Nehemiah thought about what to do to God's word into account and then went and told people that they were in the wrong. Was his method successful? Did it work when he did that? And going by the account in Nehemiah chapter 5, it didn't work. They didn't agree with him. So what did Nehemiah do then? Well, I'm told what he did in verses 7 to 13. He convened this great assembly, as he calls it. I'm not sure it's called great because of its numerical size. I think it's called great because of the issues they were talking about. And he arranged this public gathering. And since everybody came to it, it means that those who are working on the wall stopped working on the wall. And they came to this gathering and Nehemiah spoke to them about it. 
And as we look at what he does there in verses um, 7 to 13, well, we can see verse, first of all in verse 8, he points out to them their inconsistency. The inconsistency that they were practicing was they were paying money to rescue Jews from other nations who had been captured. At the same time, they were selling Jews between themselves because some of them had got into poverty because of the current circumstances. And Nehemiah says to them, that's not right. You're being inconsistent. You shouldn't be doing that. And they were silent, as you see at the end of verse 8. Well, what could they say? What he said was true. They are being inconsistent. He forced them to face up to what they were doing. And he he furthers that in verse 9 by saying, well, your practice, he says them there in verse 9, has got two consequences. One is, you're not walking in the fear of God. And the second consequence is that the nations are taunting you. They're saying, what kind of people are you? We have to remember that when we sing Psalm 126, when the nations saw them coming back from the exile, the nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. Here they are now back in the promised land. And what are the nations saying to them now that they're back there? The nations are saying to them, you're doing to your own people what other nations did to you. It's a very powerful taunt. I'm sure Nehemiah, he felt it. These people were gloating over the behavior of these Jews that come back to the promised land and basically saying about them, you're just like us. You're just doing what we do. And Nehemiah gets the people to think about it. So he confronts them with their inconsistency and their lack of the fear of God because the way they were treating these fellow Jews of theirs showed they were not loving their neighbor. It's all very practical. And what these people were doing might have seemed quite reasonable in the time of crisis. But Nehemiah says to them, disobedience to God's word is never allowed. What else does he say in this big assembly? Well, in verse 10, he says, I haven't done any of your sins. Which is a very striking thing, isn't it? He says, we are, help my and my brothers and my servants, we are lending them money and grain. I am helping them in their need, but I am not charging them any interest in giving them this process. And I suppose we can say it's very good when, when Nehemiah was able to say, 
Nobody can point the finger at him. Indeed, not only not at him, they can't point the finger, as he goes on to say in verses 14 to 19, they can't even point the finger at his administration. Everything they do is right. But anyway, he says it there in verse 10. I have given you an example, he says. It's before your eyes how you should be behaving. And that's a Psalm 112, which we sang a minute ago. Describes Nehemiah, doesn't it? What else did he do? Well, in verse 11, he requires instant reform. He tells them right away to stop doing it. Verse 11, he requires repentance and restitution. Give back to them what you have taken from them by your interest, he says there in verse 11. As I was thinking about verse 11, this thought came to me, and it's nothing original about it. I was just reminded about it. Repentance is the one thing we cannot say we'll do tomorrow. Repentance is always done today. It's impossible to say we'll do it tomorrow. If I, if I do something that's wrong and I say about that particular thing, I will repent of it in two days' time. All I'm saying about that is I don't intend to repent. And Nehemiah says them there in verse 11, he doesn't give them any time to get it sorted out. He just says, do it now. Stop your wrong actions. Instant reform. Stop doing what God forbids. Do it immediately. The people must have been very affected by that. Because their response in verse 12 is, <laughs> right, okay, we'll do it. And we'll do it right now. We'll cease our evil practices. We will do everything that you say. Instant reaction. Nehemiah, well, he wasn't quite happy with that, was he? In verse 12. After all, it's easy to make an instant, spontaneous response. But in verse 12, he turns it into a religious activity. And he gets the priests to come down. And then he makes the people swear to God in front of the priests. In other words... They've got to make a vow. In the presence of God, they're going to have to stand and say something like this. 
I'm very sorry that I charge interest on my, to my fellow Jews. And I will never do it again. And they're doing that in the presence of God. I mean, one of the things that we're very appreciative of and our religious heritage is our Westminster Confession. But you know our confession has got a chapter on vows. On taking vows in the presence of God. <coughs> vows that, for example, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're told it's better not to vow than to make one and not keep it. Because a vow in God's presence is something that he takes very serious. Indeed, he takes it so serious that Nehemiah is forced in verse 13 to give a physical illustration of what will happen if they don't keep their vow. He takes his garment and he shakes it and he says God will shake every person who breaks the vow that they are going to make on this occasion. It must have been quite a fearsome sight to see him doing that, mustn't it? But it worked. Because we can see there in verse 13, the whole assembly said amen and praised the Lord. Nehemiah had confronted them with their sin. And instead of being angry and annoyed and saying to him, you don't understand the difficulties that we're living in. Instead of saying that, they all said amen and they praised the Lord and they did as they promised. And God smiled on them again. Remarkable effects, wouldn't you say? Crisis had been, evo- uh, had been avoided. Not only had the crisis been avoided, it had been removed. The problem from the inside had been sorted out. Even as previous chapters, the problem from the outside had been sorted out. What has this, all this got to do with us in 2023? Well, I suppose one thing would be to pray to God to give us politicians like Nehemiah. Shouldn't we? I mean, he's a model for a politician, isn't he? He did what God wanted. Nobody could point the finger at him or his administration. That's some claim to make. And he says there in verse 14 that for 12 years he had kept this up. Now it is possible for us to look at the incident and say, well, it's all about social or economic policy. 
And at one level, that's what it looked like. But really, who was behind all this? Who was trying to hinder the Jews as they were building their wall? Who didn't want the Jews to return to their own land? Because if they did return to their own land, that would mean that somewhere in the future, all these promises about the coming Messiah would be fulfilled. Who was here working to prevent this happening? Surely the devil. The devil's not just limited to what we could call spiritual activities. He can work through anything. And if if his working will bring disharmony to the work of on which God's people are focused, then he'll use it. He wanted the wall not to proceed. And he would do anything to stop the wall proceeding. And his tactics almost worked. The devil can use anything to bring disharmony into the work of God. And that's what was happening here, wasn't it? That's an obvious lesson from this um, passage. There's another lesson from it too, and that is the importance of being angry at sinful actions. It's easy to get angry. We actually live in a very angry time. But what really matters with anger? Is the motives for anger. Why should we be angry? When should we be angry? How should we be angry? After all, we know that Moses, his wrong anger, cost him a place in the promised land. Hit the rock twice, Instead of once, because the people annoyed him. God told him, hit the rock once, he hit it twice. He didn't get into Canaan because of that. Uncontrolled anger by the meekest man who ever lived. It's not his anger that was wrong. It was the intensity of it. How about Paul with Peter? When Peter refused to eat with the Gentiles. Quite a small matter we might say. That's not what Paul thought. Because even Barnabas was in danger of being led astray. Paul was angry. And he was right to be angry. Didn't lose his temper. But he confronted Peter with his sin. It's better to talk to the person about his sin than to talk to other people about it. 
Anger. Jesus was angry. He was angry with those who used the fourth commandment as an excuse for not helping people. He was angry with those who used God's temple to line their own pockets. Anger. There is a place for it. It's the mark of a righteous man to be angry at sin. Especially sin that oppresses the poor. Which was what was happening here. Lack of anger can point to indifference. doesn't mean we should lose our temper. But it does mean we cannot be neutral. So, the devil can be active. Anger is right at times. Verse 15, there's also the value of fearing God. That's what... That's how Nehemiah describes himself there in verse 15. Why was he different? He says, I did not do so because of the fear of God. I suspect that a person knows when he's fearing God or not. Knows why he thinks something. Knows why he does something. Whether it's on the fear of God or not. As we begin 2023, a good resolution would be, wouldn't it, let us fear God. Another lesson the benefit of communal repentance. Here were these people and all their burdens, all the things happening in society were leading them into a confused situation. They chose a wrong path to try and deal with it. Nehemiah led them to repent. Communal repentance. He just spoke to them about it, and as we read there in verse 13, all assembly said Amen and praised the Lord. Sometimes there is a place for communal repentance. Just to show other people what we think and to do it and to discover that other people are actually having the same response. The Bible's full of communal repentance. 
of people just getting together and saying, we have sinned against God. And to ask for his mercy communally and to express our devotion to him communally. And is that not a good way to begin 2023? The last thing I want to mention is this. And we've noticed it already in Nehemiah. But what's the secret of his life? Well, we get it in verse 19. He's a man of prayer. Remember me, O God, for my good, all that I have done for this people. That's the secret of his success. No doubt we prayed in 2022. But I suspect, and I say this about myself, but I think it's true generally. None of us prayed the way we should have or could have. But maybe 2023 is a time for prayer. Because at the end of 2023, for us, we have no idea. But I do wonder what life will be like. It's time to pray. And this coming year is a time that needs prayer. Shall we pray? Lord, we realize that from the perspective of our global dilemmas, the circumstances of Nehemiah's little problem didn't seem that important. But in the eyes of, eyes of heaven, it was very important. Your wall was being hindered from being built. And what matters from heaven is the progress of the kingdom of God. There's many lessons from Nehemiah. Anger. Communal repentance. Determination to follow your word. Leaders in places of power whose characters were in line with your word. Lord, we need you to come. We need people like Nehemiah. We ask you, Lord, to provide them and to do it in 2023. So remember us, Lord, for your own name's sake. Amen. We'll sing from Psalm 17 and sing psalms and verses 7 to 9. Display your steadfast love and save with your right hand 
or those who flee for help to you when foes against them stand. We'll stand and sing verses 7 to 9. Display your steadfast love and save with your right hand all those who flee for help to you when foes again them stand in shadow of your wings hide me in times of strife and as the Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.